Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be finishing up the chapter this morning, and we're uh, passing the halfway mark here uh, in our series through the Gospel of Matthew as we, we look at verses 29 through 39 of Matthew chapter 15. Uh, remember, we've just seen Jesus, uh, this striking tale of Jesus first testing the faith and then rewarding the faith of the, the Canaanite woman, this Gentile, who is seeing who Christ is when the Pharisees and the Israelites are not. And now we continue to see Christ's ministry uh, amongst the uh, the Gentile region of Galilee in the two scenes that we're going to look at this morning. So let's give our attention now to God's Word, Matthew 15, beginning in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, And the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. The disciple said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This ends the reading of God's word given to bless us. Let's seek his blessing on our time in the scriptures this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you remind us again and again and again that your steadfast love endures forever. We can multiply examples of this, Lord. We can think of so many scenes like the ones that we are reading here today that that show us your steadfast love endures forever. We can think of so many stories from the history of your church uh, down through the centuries where your steadfast love endures forever. We can think of things that we have experienced even in our own lives, our own family, our own congregation, where we can see that your steadfast love endures forever. 
And I ask now, God, that as we give our attention to this part of your word, that we would be struck once again with your glory and your goodness, that we would be moved, as the psalmist was, to lift our voices with the congregation and say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are uh, about halfway through the Gospel of Matthew at this point, and today we have two scenes set before us of Christ's ministry. And both of them look pretty familiar, don't they? We have, on the one hand, this scene of Christ uh, healing the crowds. People are coming to him, and they're bringing the sick, and he heals them. And then we have uh, a scene that may look... Even more familiar, Jesus is with a crowd, they're in a desolate place, they need to be fed, he talks to the disciples, he breaks bread and loaves, and, and, and the crowds are fed once again. And you may think, wait, we, we just read that same story in Matthew chapter 14. Now, of course, we know that uh, both Jesus healing and Jesus feeding here are different stories. They're, They're not the same things that we've read, but we've read the same kind of thing quite often in the gospel, haven't we? And, and you may find yourself as you're coming to a sermon like this, wondering, well, well, what are we going to hear that's new? Or maybe as you're reading through the gospel, you may find those repetitions in the Bible and think, well, I already kind of know this. And the temptation for us is to think, well, when we find something that's repeated, uh, we, we can just kind of speed up, move along. We, we've, we've heard this already. But actually, that's exactly the wrong impulse. I had a chance recently to to do some community judging for local debate uh, tournament, and they did give you training for that, so you know what to expect. And one of the things that they tell you is, when you're listening to these uh, these kids uh, give do their, give their speeches or do their debate, you might hear them repeat themselves. You know, they might say, you know, my main point is this, my main point is this, and they said that they're not stuttering; they're actually trained to do that because that's communicating to you, this is something important. I want you as a judge to hear what I'm saying, to write this down, pay attention. This matters. Well, the same kind of thinking applies when it comes to the Bible. When you have something that's given again and again and again, you don't just think, well, you know, perhaps there could be some better editing here. No, it's it's given every word, right? Every jot and tittle is inspired for a reason. It's all profitable for the man of God. And so we are reading through the scriptures, or as we're walking through the scriptures as a congregation, and we find that repetition, we shouldn't speed up, we should slow down. Repetition should be like a speed bump for us. Slow down, take in what we're supposed to see. And as we look at these two scenes, telling us things that we've seen already, in a sense, about Christ's ministry, that he brings healing, that he feeds the crowd, we have wonderful things to behold in God's word, brothers and sisters. And so today I want us to to slow down and look at both of these scenes and to see that, that in both of these scenes, Christ is at work. And he is at work meeting the need and the suffering of his people. And as we bring these stories together, what we find are two great and glorious truths, things that are probably a reminder to you already, but as Paul says, I don't mind reminding you because we all need that, don't we? The first truth that we see is that God gets glory from the need and the suffering of his people. God gets glory from the need and the suffering of his people. And also that God gives good to his people in their need 
and suffering. So in, in our need, in our suffering, and in the suffering we're surrounded with, the needs that we know, we can look for this to happen, that God would be getting glory through those things and God would be giving good through those things. And these stories can help us to put flesh on what that looks like, on, on what it means. So let's consider that first point together. God gets glory from the need and the suffering of his people. We see this really in both of these scenes, both of these stories, but it stands out especially to me in verses 29 through 31, this first scene where we read this. Jesus went on from there, right? He's been in the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's coming now back to the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up on a mountain and sat down there. That's familiar language, isn't it? We read that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And as he goes up, he's teaching. What happens? Well, great crowds come to him, and they're bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's the kind of crescendo of this story. It builds up from this need and suffering to this giving of glory to God. And walking through this scene can help us to understand what we mean when we say God can get glory out of your need, out of your suffering. And the first way he does that is that God uses our need, our suffering, to show us what we really need to show us our need for him. We saw last time in the story of the Canaanite woman that what compelled her to seek out Christ was a very real crisis in her life. Parents, one of the greatest crises you can have, not just that you are suffering, but that your children are suffering. Not just that you're struggling, but that, but that your, your son or your daughter is suffering. In her case, her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. In this case, we find the crowds are coming, bringing those with needs to Jesus. And they have all kinds of needs, don't they? Some of them are lame. Some of them are blind. Some of them are crippled. Some of them are mute. And many others we read as well. Every kind of problem, every kind of suffering you can imagine. And God is using That suffering, that pain, that need, being crippled, being blind, being mute, being lame, many other things. He's using those things to push people, to draw people toward himself. And isn't that so often how it happens in your life? That when you have a a stretch of life that's pretty calm and pretty comfortable, and people are getting along, and work's good, family's good, things are good. What tends to happen? Well, we tend to become comfortable, and therefore complacent, and often we drift. It's like, uh, you know, in the age of sail, if you have this massive ship, and there's no wind, it's very calm, but you're also not getting anywhere. You're drifting along. It's actually a very dangerous place to be sometimes, isn't it? Because you're not going to reach your destination. You're not moving towards what God is calling you to. The calm waters is often what we long for, but it's not always what we need. And so God allows 
the wind to come. He allows the storm to emerge. He allows suffering and pain into our life to move us toward himself. C.S. Lewis very famously said, pain is God's megaphone. It's how he gets our attention. Now, we know that the suffering and pain of this world comes as a result of sin. We live in a fallen world. That's why there are thorns and thistles in the ground. That's why there's dysfunction in relationship. That's why our bodies don't work as they always should. And yet God uses those things, those effects of the fall, those curses, to bring about blessing for his people. But the first thing he does with that is to help us feel the prick of that thorn, to help us be tossed around by that wave. It doesn't feel like a good thing, but it is. Because in that moment, in that crisis, what do we do? We begin to see that we need a Savior. We need someone else. We need God. We need Christ. We can hear Him through the megaphone. J.C. Ryle draws out that dynamic in the life of the crowds here. He says, they felt that health was the greatest of earthly blessings, and they felt that pain was the hardest of all trials to bear. Can you sympathize with that way of thinking? That's how we're wired. That's what we naturally think. But let us, however, not forget, Ryle says, that our souls are far more diseased than our bodies and learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Our souls are afflicted with a malady far more deep-seated, far more complicated, far more hard to cure than any ailment that flesh is heir to. The bulk of mankind do not feel this at all. Their eyes are blinded. They're utterly insensible to their danger. For bodily health, they will crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. For bodily health, they take long journeys to find pure air. But for their soul's health, they take no thought at all. Just think about what we've lived through in these last few years. Literally the entire world in uproar over a possible threat to our physical health. Economies shutting down, governments taking action, billions of dollars being spent. Whatever the threat may be of pandemic or disease, whatever it is, it pales in comparison to the disease that all of us are born with of our sin and of our misery. And yet most of us are happy to sit complacency through a comfortable week and hope that nothing too much happens because we don't feel our need. Well, to feel our need is actually God's grace. It's actually God's goodness. And he meets us with all sorts of problems. Oftentimes in these stories of healings that we have through the Gospels, uh, we're just told that those who were sick or demon-possessed came to Christ and and he healed them. Uh, Matthew actually slows it down a little bit, doesn't he? And says, look at the range here of need that they had. Look at the range of needs that, that Christ met. Those who were lame and crippled, those who were blind, those who were mute. Why does Matthew give us this list? And then when we see them healed, he's going to do the same thing in reverse. The blind now see, the mute now speak. He goes on through it. Why? I think part of the reason might be that anytime we see these 
these physical sicknesses and sufferings, what we are getting is an externalizing, a, a picture of the problem of sin in this world. Now, let me rush to clarify what I do and don't mean by that. Because some people have fallen into the idea that if I get sick, that is because I have committed some sin and God's punishing me for that sickness. And, and, and if I had enough faith, then I, I wouldn't be sick. God would just give me health. And so if you see someone who's sick, that's clearly an evidence that they're not walking with the Lord. And if you see someone who's healthy, that probably shows that they are walking with the Lord. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. We see righteous people who are afflicted, who are suffering, who are sick. Think of Job and all that he suffered. Think of the sores on his body when really he was the righteous man. And remember as well the words of the psalmist and many others who look and say, how is it that the wicked are sleek and fat? Which in the ancient world would be a compliment, right? Your, your life is good and comfortable. You have all the food you need. You're, you're healthy where the righteous are wasting away. No, health and, 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 and sickness are not markers of righteousness or unrighteousness. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that all sickness exists because of the problem of sin because of what Adam and Eve committed, because of the sins that we commit. So it's not tied to the individual righteousness or unrighteousness of a person. But what is true is this. Every time you are seeing sickness, you should think back to the fall. You should think back to where all this suffering came from. You should remember that we are being given these things partially as a punishment for the sins we've committed, but also as a sign of God's graciousness to show us all is not right with this world, right? To show us that we need to be redeemed. And there are echoes of the, the sufferings that we experience in our inner lives with the sickness we find in our outer lives. Maybe today, as you think about the problems you face, maybe it's not blindness. I don't know if anyone here is actually mute in the medical sense of that term or or lame or crippled as the crowds might have been. And yet I would venture to guess that there are many here today who are lame and crippled, who are blind, who are mute, and who have many other problems. Maybe you find it expressing itself this way in your life, that you're, 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 you're in a circumstance that's hard and you feel paralyzed. You don't know how to move. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know what obedience would even look like for you in this circumstance. You're, you're stuck. You are as helpless spiritually as a crippled man might be physically. You need Jesus. You need healing. You need a Savior. Maybe you're in a situation and you find yourself blinded. I just can't see God's goodness. I can't see his mercy. I see Jesus tell me that he's compassionate, but I, I can't grab hold of that myself. Maybe you struggle to see even your own sin. You hear us confess our sins each week. You hear us preach about our great sin, and yet you look at yourself and say, I think that's just kind of something that Christians say, because I'm not really that bad. I don't know that I really need a Savior. Those are your thoughts. You are blind. You're blinded to what's real. You're blinded to yourself. You're blinded to God. You need to be healed. You need your eyes open. You need a Savior. In all of these ways, 
We should see ourselves in the crowd. The crowd is us. We are the crowds. This is not just people who don't have a good healthcare system who can use Jesus to improve their well-being. It's a picture of the sin and the suffering and the need that you have, that I have, that all of us as sons of Adam have. And Christ is allowing these needs to draw them to himself as the greatest need. And he's using that need and suffering to demonstrate his power. Notice what we find in verse 31, the first part of it. That they're bringing all these people to him and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing. Every need that's brought to Christ is met. Every, every part of that Christ is reversed before him. And what do they do then? Where does all of this lead? It says at the end of that verse, and they glorified the God of Israel. God gets glory out of this. Out of the need and the suffering of his people. He uses that need to show us what we really need. He uses that need to to demonstrate his power. And he uses our need, our suffering, to magnify his glory as well. Think about that. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your need, your lameness, your blindness, your muteness, whatever it might be, that God can work in that. He can actually grow his glory through the hard thing you are experiencing. Now, to the believer, that should be good news, in part because what we should most want, what we recognize we have been made for, is the glory of God. Kids, what's the first question and answer your parents teach you? What is man's chief end? What's your purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That might sound like a strange idea to you. In fact, the, the, the idea, the proposition that God gets glory from, from my need and suffering might not sound like good news. And you might be wondering how you could put side by side the idea that our purpose in life is to glorify God and also to enjoy Him forever. Surely it's one or the other. Aren't these exclusive? Is God just using us to get glory for himself? Why is this message considered a good message? Well, let's keep reading here. Let's keep looking at Christ. And let's see what he does in this feeding of the 4,000, where we see laid before us not only this truth that God gets glory from the need and suffering of his people, but also that God gives good to his people in their need and suffering. Look at verse 32. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves, 
and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. Now, again, this is a story that should sound very familiar because it's not only uh, Jesus performing the same kind of miracle that he performed back in chapter 14, where he fed the 5,000, but even the, the structure, the flow of the story is exactly the same. The same kind of problem emerges, the same conversation unfolds. You have Jesus and the disciples and the crowds. You have them presenting these loaves, Jesus breaking them, the disciples feeling, uh, you know, feeding, and then these baskets left over. They all ate and were satisfied. Even the same language sometimes is used. There are so many similarities here that, that some people who don't, who don't accept the authority of God's word will say, well, clearly this is an example of Matthew getting confused. He had heard about this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but someone had told him some different versions, and so he put both in when actually it's just one story, right? Jesus, Matthew got mixed up. Well, not only is that a pretty hard thing to believe, given the fact that Matthew is a trained, educated uh, scribe and tax collector, he's, he's an educated man. For him to put the same story side by side uh, in one gospel and not know what's going on is, is pretty insulting to him, even at a human level. Uh, but as we look at these stories, we find they're not the same. In fact, just look at the numbers even. It's 5,000 people in one case, it's 4,000 in another. It's 12 uh, baskets left over in one case, it's it's seven baskets in another. The crowds had waited one day in one case. They'd waited three days in another. This is not the same event. It's taking place in a different area. The details are different. And yet, we can't escape the fact that overwhelmingly, we're hearing the same thing, aren't we? And I would argue that's exactly what makes this passage so beautiful and deep and wonderful. We're hearing the same thing. But there's a different context. There is a difference here, and that difference makes all the difference. Now, before we dive into what exactly is the same and what exactly is different about these two versions of, or these, these two events, these two stories, I want to give an illustration that might help us to know what we can expect as we, as we listen to these things. Imagine that you have just graduated from high school or college. And you're at your graduation party, your family's all around, and your dad comes up to you and he says, I love you. I'm proud of you. How would you feel? Well, probably good. You know, you would, you would appreciate that affirmation. He loves me. He's proud of me. But then imagine that you leave your graduation party and you've got big plans. You're going to start a business. You're going to become wealthy and successful and you move out on your own. You rent an apartment. You start your business. Six months later, you are completely broke. The business has imploded, you're actually in debt, you got kicked out of your apartment, and sheepishly you pick up your phone to text your dad and say, can you come pick me up? And you're waiting there, not looking forward to this conversation. The car pulls up, you get in, kind of keep your eyes down, and he looks at you and he says, hey, I love you, proud of you. It's the same words, isn't it? It's the same message, but there's a very different context which makes that hit very differently. 
And I think we have something very much like that happening here. Because there are things that are the same and there are things that are different. What's the same about these stories? Well, there are a lot of superficial similarities we could highlight. We've already talked about some of those things, the structure, some of the language. But but what I want us to see is that what's the same, in essence, is Jesus. It's Christ. It's his heart. It's what he wants to communicate to the crowds and to his disciples as well. And we can sum that up by seeing that in both of these stories, what is put front and center about the heart of Christ? It's his compassion, isn't it? To have compassion means that you you feel for someone. You were moved for them even as they would be moved for themselves. It's more than just pity, not just, oh, wow, that looks really hard. I'm glad that's not me, and you kind of move along. It's No, it's it's a moving towards someone because you see them hurting. Uh, parents, it's what you feel when you see your kid fall on the sidewalk or when they come home from being with friends and they're in tears because people have been cruel and thoughtless to them. And your heart just goes out. You You want to wrap them up. You probably do wrap them up in a hug. Because what else could you do? You see their suffering. And that's what we see in the heart of Christ. Jesus says to his disciples, look at these crowds. We're in a desolate place. There's no villages around. We've been here three days. There's no food for them to eat. I have compassion on the crowd. In fact, Jesus makes this wonderful statement. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Do you see how this begins to answer the question of how is God getting glory out of this, not just God using us? When we think that way, what we're doing is decoupling something that God has joined together. We tend to think God's glory and our good are somehow at odds. And maybe we even kind of crassly can think, well, there's this symbiotic relationship. God gets glory out of something and I get good out of it, so it works out in the end. But that's not the way that God has structured redemption. What God has done in redemption, what God has done in entering into a relationship with us as his people is to yoke his glory and our good together. That's part of what you see in this beautiful picture where where God makes the covenant with Abraham. And what does he do? He says, I'm not going to have you walk through and me walk through Abraham so that we've each got our part. God says, I'm going to take your part, Abraham. The blessings will be all on you. The curses will be all on me. That's how God approaches this problem of our pain and of our suffering. That's what moves him to bless us. Yes, to get glory for himself, but how does he get glory for himself? Well, God has ordained, he has chosen that his greatest glory would come from meeting the needs of his people, from being their savior, from showing his compassion. And so what's the same here is this. It's the same Jesus. It's the same salvation. It's the same heart. It's the same provision. And it's the same satisfaction that is offered. It's the same words. I love you. I'm proud of you. But here's what's different about the context. In the first story, who were the people of God who were being fed? Well, it was the people of God. It was the Jews. It was the Israelites. 
and God was meeting their needs. God was feeding them, even as he had done for their forefathers in the wilderness, sending manna down from heaven. And now Jesus says, I am the bread who comes from heaven. Jesus is, is, is abundantly meeting the needs of his covenant people. That is wonderful. It's also exactly what you would expect, isn't it? You would expect the Jewish Messiah to bless the Jewish people. But that is not what is happening in this story. The changed context, the different scene, is that we're not at the graduation party, where of course people will congratulate you and thank you and show you how much they love you because you've done well and you're part of the family and you're part of the household. That's not the scene. What we have here is a crowd of people who are not part of God's people in that old covenant sense. Jesus is ministering here to the Gentiles. He was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's come now into the region we know from the Gospel of Mark of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region. Matthew even includes this little detail for us. In both of these stories, baskets of of food are taken up. But in Matthew 14, it's the Jewish word for baskets. In Matthew 15, it's the Gentile word for baskets. We're being told these are different crowds. The people here are those who were far off. They're those like the Canaanite woman. The story that leads us into these stories, who has no claim on Christ from a covenant perspective. She is not an ethnic Israelite. In fact, she is ethnically of the line that were enemies of God's people, enemies of God, those who were to be driven out and cut off from the land for their wickedness. And yet here she comes on her knees before the Jewish Messiah saying, Lord, help me, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And Jesus, notice what he does there. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus is not actually calling her a dog, you'll notice. He's simply pointing out this dynamic, that there's a household and those who, are, who should be fed by God, and there are those who are outside of that household. But in her response, notice what she does. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She puts herself in the household of God. And that's what leads Jesus to say, Oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And what we saw there, we see here as well. Where Christ is not just feeding them with crumbs, is he? He's feeding them abundantly. The seven loaves are broken until all eat and all are satisfied. And there's seven basketfuls taken up. I don't think it's a coincidence that the number 12 is used for the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel, God meeting their needs, and that seven is used for the Gentiles. Seven is that number of fullness and abundance and completion. Jesus has made it clear that his ministry is primarily to the lost sheep of Israel, but he's also made it clear that his ministry will not end at the borders of Israel. Even as God said in his promise to Abraham, I am blessing you so that in you all the nations might be blessed. And that is spilling out here in this story. Jesus is coming to those who don't belong to him and is making them part of his people. He's expanding the boundaries of his people. Now, why does that matter for us here today? Well, it should matter for at least two reasons. One, 
most of us here are Gentiles, which means this is the story of your inclusion. How are you able to come into God's presence? How are you able to join with his people? Why is it that we here in America today even know these stories of what God has done in the past? It's because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It's because we have been welcomed in. And so we are hearing, in a sense, part of our family story, part of what has opened the gates of heaven and of Christ's kingdom to us. And so we should all have an interest in these things. But also because this shows us, again, just how abundant and wide-reaching Christ's compassion is. His heart is for those who are lost. As he said to the Pharisees before, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the ones who are healthy who need a doctor, it's the ones who are sick who need a doctor. The Pharisees will not accept that. The Canaanite woman is desperate for it. And friends, some of you may feel a lot more like the Canaanite woman. You may think of yourself kind of like a Gentile, someone outside, someone cut off. It's not primarily an ethnic category in our mind, is it, anymore? You don't think of yourself as a Gentile, therefore not deserving the Jewish Messiah. But there are other ways in which we draw dividing walls of hostility that Christ has torn down. It may just be at a cultural level. You come into a congregation and and you just don't feel like you fit with them, therefore you feel like you can't belong to Christ. Or maybe you look at yourself and it's not so much that you think, well, I don't fit in with them. My place is over here. You say, I don't fit in with them and I don't have a place anywhere. I just feel awkward and isolated everywhere I go. I struggle to see anything of value in me. I don't know why anyone would want me to be part of their family, why anyone would adopt me, why anyone would want to have me as their brother or sister why my life matters at all. We find ourselves in these places, don't we? Cut off, cast out, living east of Eden, and we, we, we can barely peer our way back in, but we think that may be true for some people, for nicer people, for more beautiful people, for more talented people, but it's, it can't be for me. I don't deserve that. But, but, but what is the dividing line here? Those who are receiving are those who recognize they don't deserve it. Those who think they probably do deserve it do not actually receive it. And this is part of how God uses our need and our suffering to draw us to himself, to get glory for his name, and to do good for us, to make us part of his people and to bless us as part of his people. And if you struggle with that, If you find yourself in a suffering with a need that you think there's no way God can get glory from this. There's no way God can do good to me in this. It's too painful. It's too dark. It's too difficult. Remember what all of this is founded upon. It's founded upon the need and the suffering of Christ. The one who here is meeting our needs is able to do that, is able to feed us because he's going to be broken for us. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is the one who has secured peace with God through the blood of the cross. 
What we heard in, in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is what we should have in mind as we see this scene of Christ's abundant compassion, this giving of himself, this feeding of the people. That he has suffered greatly and yet has received great glory. He has suffered tremendously and yet he has accomplished the greatest good. Because in Christ's suffering on the cross, here's what you have. We've been talking about suffering and glory and good and how they all fit together. And it's it's tricky to figure that out, isn't it? But look at the cross and what you will see is the moment in history where you have the highest suffering, the highest glory, and the highest good all present in that moment in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as you look to Christ, broken for you, his blood spilled for you, his life given for you, you know what real suffering looks like. And it's not something that you have to go through. It's something he went through for you. And you can see as well that what looked like the lowest point of human history is actually the highest point. Tolkien gave it a, a name for this, the catastrophe. It looks like the worst thing. It's actually the best thing. It's actually the height of human history. God's glory is magnified in the cross like nowhere else. And good for God's people is found there like it is nowhere else. And so, friend, as we come to these stories, slow down. Don't breeze past them. See the heart of Christ that doesn't change. See his willingness to meet your needs, to show you good, to magnify his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are, like the disciples, so quick to forget. We read these stories and we just shake our heads and think, how could they ask these stupid questions? Where are we supposed to get bread? Lord, we've, we've seen you give bread. And yet, Father, we confess we have the same hearts. We have the same forgetfulness. You have blessed us. You've provided for us. You've preserved us. You've protected us in the past. And yet, Lord, as we look ahead at another week, we're all filled with temptations to fear and worry and anxiety and control and all of the other things because we, we think, where am I supposed to get bread for this week? Lord, teach us once again how to pray. To pray, give us this day our daily bread. To look to you to believe that you're enough, to hear once again those words of compassion, to hear your love and affirmation spoken, not just to those who are already part of the covenant, those who, who we would expect to be blessed by you, but even for us, even those who feel like the chief of sinners or the worst of sufferers, that you are exactly the one that looks at us and says, I have compassion on you and I am unwilling to send you away hungry. So, Lord, feed us. Lord, bless us. Lord, do good to us and give glory to yourself through it all. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.